Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 366, Smith and Barlow versus Nissan and Essary Debate. Is Jesus Yahweh? Part 1. I've long thought that a debate, if well done, can be a great introduction to a disputed topic for someone who's just starting to try to think through the issues for himself. The problem is that most debates are not very well done. Sometimes one or both sides doesn't really prepare. Sometimes both sides just assert rather than present arguments that can persuade. And very often, an apologist thinks that it's their job to verbally abuse and humiliate the other side. This should not be, but it's the way it is. But I was really delighted on April 2nd of 2023 when I had a chance to hear live what I think is the best Unitarian-Trinitarian debate that I've heard. What makes it the best is that both sides are prepared, both sides present arguments, And both sides act like Christians. You might even be forgiven for thinking that the debaters are a little too friendly. But seriously, this is one that repays a close listen. I'd like to start by thanking Marlon Wilson, who has the YouTube channel The Gospel Truth, for his permission to present my edit of the audio here. I've edited out a lot of his little in-between statements, sort of housekeeping things in between the substantial arguments. And also, if you want to hear the debate broken down into smaller pieces, where you hear today's episode and you're just dying to hear the rest of it, check out Dr. Dustin Smith's excellent Biblical Unitarian podcast, where he gives his version of this debate, starting with episode 271. And of course, I'll also put a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org for the original video from Marlon Wilson's channel, The Gospel Truth. So on the negative side, we have Dr. Dustin Smith and Pastor Will Barlow from Kentucky. On the positive side, we have evangelical apologist Samuel Nissan and seminary professor Dr. Kyle Essery. So without further ado. My name is Will Barlow, and I'm currently the head pastor of Compass Christian Church. It's a new church plant in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find us online at compasslu.org. And I am Dustin Smith. And this is uh, my second debate on this channel, so I'm excited to be here. Uh, Although my research interest, uh, my doctoral dissertation was on uh, paradoxical conquering in the book of Revelation, I am deeply interested in matters of monotheism and early Christology in the New Testament. I've been teaching undergraduate and graduate biblical studies for about nine years now. Uh, And I also have a, a weekly podcast called the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Kyle. I'm a husband, father of four. I'm an elder at Gospel City Church in Kuala Lumpur, and I'm also the interim dean of Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, the Kling Valley Campus. I am interested in the Old Testament, and I teach for a number of seminaries. 
I'm Samuel. I'm the co-founder and president of Explain International. It's an apologetics ministry that's dedicated to defending and articulating the gospel. And so we conduct trainings in churches and in colleges, universities, anyone that invites us. So uh, if you want to check out more on that, you can do that uh, on www.explaininternational.com. I'm also the program director for the Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary Great Commission Apologetics Program. We offer courses on master's um, and diploma and certificate. So if you want to check us out, you can do that as well on the Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary website. And the topic for t- of today's debate is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? We're going to start that off with 15-minute opening statements. All right. Well, I want to begin by thanking Marlon, Dustin, and William for this opportunity to discuss Scripture. Our question is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Now, this is not a philosophical question, nor is this a question about historical interpretation. It is a question about the Bible. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Our goal, then, is to show that at least one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh. Because if one passage reveals that Jesus is Yahweh, then the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make two contentions from the Bible. First, we contend that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. Second, we contend that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. As to our first contention that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh, we would point to three passages where people accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In John 5, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and the Jews sought to kill him because, quote, he was making himself equal to God, end quote. In John 8, Jesus said, quote, before Abraham was, I am, end quote, and the Jews tried to stone him which is the biblical punishment for blasphemy. Finally, in John 10, Jesus said, quote, I and the Father are one, end quote. And the Jews picked up stones and replied, quote, you being a man, make yourself God, end quote. In each of these passages, the Bible does not deny the validity of the Jewish response. Whereas the Bible regularly clarifies when people misunderstand Jesus, it chooses not to do so here. Our second contention is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We will make three arguments to support this contention. The first argument is the argument from worship. It has three premises. Premise one, the Bible teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise two, the Bible teaches that people worship Jesus. And therefore, our conclusion, Jesus must be Yahweh. We will all agree on the first premise. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Listen, Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The two titles for the one God in this verse are the titles Elohim, God, and Yahweh. The title Yahweh is the specific covenantal name for Israel's God. It was used in the Garden of Eden, it was used by the patriarchs, and it was revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush. But the term Elohim, God, is a more generic term. It can describe a variety of beings, both divine and human. It often refers to Yahweh, but can also refer to beings in God's heavenly counsel. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, quote, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods, Elohim, end quote. It can refer to demons or to God's messenger as well. 
As Dr. Smith, Dustin has argued, and I agree, it can refer to humans. Exodus 7 verse 1 says, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh in reference to Moses. Psalm 45 verse 6 says, your throne, Elohim, is forever and ever in reference to the Davidic king. It can even refer to the spirit of a dead person, as with Samuel in 1 Samuel 28 verse 13. Thus, the title Elohim has a much wider range of meaning than the title Yahweh. It can describe Yahweh or various representatives of Yahweh, including both angels and humans. And it also can refer to the gods, Elohim, of the nations. These are idols who are certainly not Yahweh. And this is why the Old Testament specifies that Yahweh is your God or Elohim a total of 438 times. Yahweh is unlike any of these other Elohim. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says, For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohe Elohim, the God of gods. No other God is Yahweh. The Bible teaches very clearly that there is a creator creature distinction. Only Yahweh stands on the side of creator. Everything else, including any other being that might be titled an Elohim, stands on the side of the creatures. Therefore, Israel must worship and serve Yahweh alone. The first commandment states, quote, you shall have no other Elohim beside me, end quote. The second commandment adds that Israel must not quote, bow in worship to them or serve them, end quote. Over 100 times, the Old Testament warns against worshiping and serving any God except Yahweh, the true God. Thus, premise one of my arguments states that the Bible teaches to worship and serve Yahweh alone. This is why Daniel 7, 13, and 14 should shock us. It reads, quote, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, end quote. Now, there is much worthy of discussion in this passage, but we will focus on the statement that, quote, those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, end quote. The Aramaic verb often translated serve is palach and means to worship pay reverence to or serve deity. Brown Driver Briggs gives the gloss to pay reverence or serve deity. The Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament gives the gloss, quote, to serve God. The verb is used only 10 times in the Bible. It always refers to the service or worship of a god. In Ezra, it refers to serving God in the temple. In Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, it refers to serving either the false gods of Babylon, which Daniel and his friends refused to do, or to serving the true God. But in Daniel 7, people of all nations, Palak, serve the Son of Man. Now, the Aramaic Targums use this same term in the Ten Commandments, where people are warned not to serve other gods. The Old Greek translation uses a word that likewise refers specifically to religious service or devotion. It's the Greek word that Jesus uses when he says to, quote, worship the Lord your God and serve him only in Luke 4, verse 8. Thus, 
Daniel prophesies that people of all nations will serve the Son of Man. Since Jesus himself and others called Jesus the Son of Man over 80 times in the gospel, my argument stands. Premise 1, the Bible teaches people to worship and serve Yahweh alone. Premise 2, the Bible teaches that people worship Jesus, the Son of Man. Conclusion, Jesus must be Yahweh. I'll now pass the time to Samuel for our next arguments. Thank you, Kyle. Really appreciate that. I will move on to our second argument in this debate, and that is going to be the argument from explicit passages. Now, the purpose of this argument is to demonstrate, of course, that the scriptures in plain terms teach that Jesus is Yahweh. The first passage we'll be looking at is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, although I'll focus specifically on verses 10 to 11. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, Yahweh declares, quote, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, end quote. Uh, by the way, the Septuagint reading of that same passage reads, quote, every tongue shall confess, uh, end quote. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that and expounds on that in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, saying that, quote, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does Paul mean by Lord? Well, if we allow scripture to interpret scripture, it clearly means that Jesus is Yahweh. That's the first passage. The second passage is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Dr. Carl Esseri just now pointed to the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which teaches the Lord our God is one. And the Apostle Paul alludes to that, certainly, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, when he says, quote, there is no God but one. And so when he further expounds on the Shema, we see him distinguishing Lord and God, attributing the title God to the Father, and Lord, which is Yahweh in the Shema, to Jesus, he says, quote, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And as Dr. Carl pointed out earlier, the creator-creature distinction forces us to, in this text, recognize that Jesus belongs in the creator category. And hence, quite explicitly, the scriptures teach Jesus is Yahweh. By the way, Paul is not the only one to do this. In Jude 1.4, the apostle writes, calling, referring to Jesus as, quote, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, end quote. And so when we allow scripture to speak for itself, we see that the scriptures in plain terms, explicit terms, call Jesus Lord. Now, there are many other passages like this, such as, of course, as you, most of us would know, Thomas' confession about Jesus being my Lord and my God, but we, we won't have time to expound on that. So it's only going to be these three passages as far as the second argument, the argument from explicit passages. Finally, in our third argument, we'll look at an argument from what I call replacement passages. Uh, now, the idea of replacement passages is that there are certain titles attributed to God in the Old Testament or certain verses, but in the New Testament, the apostles replace that with Jesus, demonstrating that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. The first one is that Yahweh is the first and the last. In Isaiah 42, verse 11 to 12, Yahweh declares, quote, my glory I will not give to another, end quote. And he goes on to declare again, quote, I am the first and I am the last, end quote. Now, having said that he's not going to give his glory to another, we should find it shocking if we deny that Jesus is Yahweh because Jesus is going to apply the title directly to himself in Revelation 1.17. He says, 
quote, fear not, I am the first and the last, end quote. Now, the Apostle Peter clearly, and, and I mean clearly here, explicitly, well, not explicitly in word for word, but in his citation of the Old Testament, treats Jesus as not just Yahweh, but a lot of hosts. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, Yahweh commands the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, quote, not to fear, not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but a lot of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, end quote. Now, Peter is going to cite that, except he replaces lot of hosts with Christ the Lord. In 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, the apologetics proof text, Peter cites this passage and says, quote, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, end quote. And this makes it very clear that it's not just Paul that considers Jesus Yahweh or John or even Jude for that matter. The apostle Peter himself substitutes the term Yahweh, a lot of hosts for Jesus Christ. Two other passages paying close attention to the time here. Number three, Isaiah saw Yahweh. In Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 10, we see that Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh. And the Apostle John is going to cite that vision, or, or rather allude to it in John chapter 12, verse 40 to 41, where he cites Isaiah 6, 10 before declaring, quote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, end quote. So who did Isaiah see? Well, Isaiah says he saw the angels declaring, holy is the Lord, Yahweh. Who does John say Isaiah saw? Well, he says he saw Jesus. And so allowing scripture to speak, we are forced, left with no option, but to conclude that Jesus is Yahweh. Finally, there are other passages that deal specifically with the Exodus, fourthly. We see Yahweh's involvement in the Exodus. Uh, Yahweh both saves his people and he also destroys people in Egypt because of their unbelief. And we see the apostles uh, citing this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the apostle Paul says, quote, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, referring to the Exodus, and says, quote, And the rock was Christ, end quote. Who followed the people of Israel in the wilderness? The apostle Paul says, Christ did. The Old Testament tells us Yahweh did. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9? It says, quote, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, end quote. Who did the people of Israel put to test in the wilderness according to Deuteronomy? Yahweh. According to the New Testament, Jesus. Finally, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. Moses, it says, quote, Considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, end quote. Did Moses consider the reproach of Christ? But Christ didn't exist back then. Well, Jesus is Yahweh, and hence the scriptures regularly cross-reference, applying Jesus to the Yahweh passages of the Old Testament. And so in conclusion, we've presented three arguments, the argument from worship, the argument from explicit passages, and the argument from replacement passages. And so one of these would be enough to demonstrate that Jesus is Yahweh. But I think in this case, we have an overwhelming number of passages to demonstrate that. I look forward to seeing the replies and the opening statements from our opponent. Thanks again. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the opening statement from the negative side, the side that argues that Jesus is not Yahweh.
Well, good morning to our esteemed dialogue partners in Malaysia. I want to start by thanking Marlon Wilson and Samuel and Kyle for taking the time to dialogue with us on this important question. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? My opening encouragement to the audience is simple. You come in with your beliefs about who Jesus is and how the Bible portrays him. My encouragement is for you to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. No matter what you currently believe, whether you agree with me or not, please try to set aside your beliefs and evaluate the evidence freshly. I want to begin by pointing out a few differences in our approach as compared with our Trinitarian dialogue partners. I'm sure we'll agree on many, many things in the Bible, but where will we disagree tonight? Number one, we will disagree on the definition of Yahweh. Our side following the lexicons will define Yahweh as a singular noun with a singular referent, the Father alone, the only true God, who in the New Testament is simply called the Father. Number two, we'll disagree on the definition of Jesus. Our side will define Jesus as the promised King, the promised Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. Nonetheless, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he is currently exalted to the right hand of God, his Father. Number three, we'll disagree on how to interpret basic facts. There are basic facts relevant to this debate. Jesus is worshiped. Jesus is called God. Yahweh texts are applied to Jesus, as we heard in their opening statement, and so on. These facts have to be interpreted in light of the immediate context in the whole of Scripture. You will have to decide who does the better job of that. With this in mind, I offer seven opening points. The first one, Yahweh is the personal name of the God of Israel, used 6,800 plus times in the Hebrew Bible. And Yahweh is a single person, the Father, not a plurality of persons. Yahweh is explicitly and regularly illustrated in the Hebrew Bible as one single person, as we can see with over 20,000 singular references, pronouns, verbs, adjectives, pronominal suffices. One would be hard-pressed, in fact, to find a more thoroughly attested truth in the Bible than the 20,000-plus references to Yahweh being only one person. And Yahweh just is the Father, not the Son. As it says in Deuteronomy 32.6, Do you thus repay Yahweh, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your Father who has bought you? He has created you and he established you. Isaiah 63, 16 says, For you are our father. You, O Yahweh, are our father. The one who redeems us from old is your name. Or Malachi 1, 6, Then if I am a father, where is my honor, says Yahweh of hosts. While our distinguished dialogue partners would agree that Yahweh is the father, our contention is that Yahweh is the father alone, not the father, son, and spirit. And this fits with over 20,000 singular references for Yahweh. God is one person, the Father alone, and Yahweh never declares himself to be the Son. Our second point we want to offer is that Jesus is the given human name for the Son of God. In Matthew one twenty one, it says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. In Luke one thirty one, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. As such, Jesus is not alive or present anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh, who as a reminder is the Father alone, is never called the Hebrew Yeshua or Yehoshua. And although this hardly needs to be stated since it is self-evident, God and Jesus are two distinct beings. Lair Hurtado points out the obvious for our benefit. There are two distinguishable figures, God and Jesus. Our third point tonight is that the messianic expectation set forth by the Hebrew Bible and confirmed by the New Testament looks forward to a figure who is distinguished from Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 18, in part of verses 15 through 19, Moses is speaking, he says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Later, he quotes Yahweh, saying, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We notice several things about this text. 
The figure promised by Yahweh is a human prophet, like Moses, meaning he will be a highly qualified human prophet, not Yahweh. Second point, from among your countrymen is what it says. He's a member of Israel, not an angel, not a divine being, not a Gentile, and certainly not Yahweh himself. Third, Yahweh puts his words into the mouth of this human Israelite prophet so that the human prophet authoritatively functions as a spokesman of Yahweh. You can see John 14 and Acts 3. Next, the prophet speaks these words in the name of Yahweh, making the prophet Yahweh's authorized agent. And finally, the New Testament confirms that Jesus is this promised prophet like Moses in Acts 3 and 7. Our next text is for this is in Psalm 2, which says in part, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. We notice several things about this passage as well. First, there are two figures of note in this royal psalm, Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed king. Second, Yahweh calls this anointed king my son. Third, if the anointed king is Yahweh's son, then Yahweh must be the father. Yahweh cannot be the son. Next, the psalm repeatedly illustrates Yahweh with singular references. His Messiah, I have installed my king, my holy mountain. He said, you are my son. I have become your father. Ask of me, I will give you. Thoroughly demonstrating that Yahweh is the father alone. Next, Yahweh is clearly greater than the anointed king as Yahweh gives the king his inheritance and all fathers in the ancient world were recognized as greater than their sons. Yahweh and the son are not co-equal. And finally, Psalm 2 is cited, alluded to, and echoed extensively in the New Testament to refer to the father and Jesus. See Acts 4 and Revelation 12. And I just want to point out that if you look at the Acts 4 reference, notice how in Acts 4, these Christians are praying to God. They're calling him Lord, and they distinguish the Lord Yahweh from his servant Jesus, who you anointed. And they do that by quoting this psalm. Finally, we want to talk about Psalm 110.1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We notice four things about this text. First, the oracle of David presents two figures, Yahweh and a second Lord figure. The original setting here is a human king from David's line. This person is clearly distinguished from Yahweh. The second Lord in this passage is the Hebrew noun Adani. And after looking up every single one of the 195 occurrences of this word in the Hebrew Bible, I can confidently say when this word appears, it never once refers to Yahweh. Most frequently, it's used in the context of a human superior. Second, in Psalm 110.1, Yahweh summons the second Lord to sit at his right hand. A king's right hand is a highly exalted but still subordinate position to that king, who in this case is Yahweh. Psalm 110.1 also indicates that Yahweh will be the one to put all enemies under the feet of the second Lord. Third, notice again that Yahweh speaks as only one person, my right hand, until I make. And again, finally, the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 110.1 in reference to the Father and the Son more than any other Old Testament passage. You can look at Acts 2 for one example of this. Our fourth contention tonight is that Yahweh frequently sends, empowers, qualifies, and authorizes agents who represent Yahweh in the context of widely accepted Jewish principles of agency. And in this context, Jesus is God's supreme agent. Here are several points about that. First, human kings, Solomon, it said in 1 Chronicles 29, sat on the throne of Yahweh. Angelic messengers, in Exodus 23, it says, my name, Yahweh, is in him for an angel, which by definition is a messenger. Jesus is the agent of God, and this should not be controversial, as the Gospel of John describes Jesus as the one whom God, in the context of John, is the Father, has sent at least 40 times just in the Gospel of John. 
And fourth, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins in Matthew 9, 6. We also notice that the Father has given all things into Jesus' hand, judgment and the ability to give life in John 3 and 13 and 5. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus in Matthew 28. So we should not be surprised that Jesus, the agent of Yahweh, represents Yahweh in a manner that allows Yahweh, our God, to share his name with Jesus. We notice in Philippians 2.10, God exalts Jesus and shares his name with Jesus. All four Gospels indicate that in the triumphal entry, Jesus comes in the name of Yahweh. And Jesus himself admits to being the agent of the Father. In John 5, he says, I have come in my Father's name. And in John 10, he says, these works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And finally, here's scholarly support for contention for. Richard Bauckham says, as God's plenipotentiary, Jesus exercises all the functions of God. Larry Hurtado says, Jesus is the unique principal agent of God. James McGrath says, the agent can not only carry out the divine functions, but also be depicted in divine language, sit on God's throne or alongside God, and even bear the divine name. And finally, Daniel Kirk says, idealized human figures are a widespread and wide-ranging reality in the literature of early Judaism. Human beings of the past, present, or idealized future who are depicted with actions, descriptions, or attributes that are typically reserved for God alone. This leads us to the fifth contention, which is that Jesus and Yahweh are clearly different persons who have mutually exclusive traits. And we are going to contend that if we can just prove one simultaneous and intrinsic difference that that implies that Jesus and Yahweh are separate and not identical. Our first contention for this is that Yahweh is eternal and Jesus was brought into existence. Psalm 93 says, Yahweh reigns, you are from everlasting. Isaiah 40 says, the everlasting God, Yahweh. Talking about Jesus, it says, now the genesis of Jesus was as follows in Matthew 1. That which is begotten in Mary is of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1. And Luke 1, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child begotten will be called the Son of God. The second sub point here is that God cannot die and Jesus did die. God cannot die, as stated very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But Jesus died, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, using other titles of Jesus. It says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2. Or how about the Son of Man? We heard about the Son of Man tonight in their opening statement, but he said the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day, Matthew 17. And Jesus in his own words, in his resurrected body says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is Revelation chapter one. Third, the ability to be tempted. It says in James chapter 1 that God cannot be tempted with evil, and yet Jesus was clearly tempted with evil. Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Hebrews 4.15. Our sixth contention is that the New Testament use of the Old Testament is not a one-to-one equivalent. Notice Isaiah 7.14-16. through 16, It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And in Matthew 1.23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the original context in Isaiah 7, there was a certain baby who is not going to reach the age of reason before the lands of the two kings, which in this case is Syria and Israel, they would be deserted. That baby, that baby that existed in the time of Isaiah is compared with Jesus. But the point here is clear that Jesus is not the same as that baby. 
There are three other examples we'd like to offer up quickly. First, Matthew 2, 14 and 15 quotes Hosea 11. And in the original reference, the son called out of Egypt is the faithless nation of Israel. Another example is in Matthew 13, when it quotes Psalm 78, where a text originally about Asaph is applied to Jesus. And this pattern of interpretation where Yahweh passages are applied to people not Yahweh can be found even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as these New Testament examples already given. So our contention in this debate is that prophecy is frequently used this way. We agree that there are Yahweh texts applied to Jesus, just as Asaph and David texts are applied to Jesus as well. Do our dialogue partners want to argue that Jesus is literally Asaph, literally the nation of Israel? So please don't grant them the idea that Jesus is Yahweh strictly using Hebrew Bible quotations. They have to prove that the context in the New Testament quotation demands a literal application of the quote. Furthermore, if we are not careful with the application of a Yahweh text, then we could wrongly conclude that the use of a Yahweh text for Jesus would actually mean that Jesus is the Father. And it is self-evident that the Son is someone distinguished from the Father. That leads me to contention number seven. The understanding that Yahweh is more than one person was developed hundreds of years after the writing of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament and is historically anachronistic to read 4th and 5th century theological ideas back into the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. There are five points we want to make here. The first one is that these post-biblical concepts include the doctrine of Jesus' two natures, the eternal generation of the Son, and the personality of the Holy Spirit. Second, Judaism was monotheistic, not Trinitarian. Third, there were no Trinitarians in the first century since neither Jesus, his apostles, nor the writers of the New Testament taught this doctrine. There were no Trinitarians in the second century, and there were no Trinitarians in the third century. Now, to close, here are some scholarly quotes that support this claim. Ben Witherington III, one of Dr. Smith's professors in his graduate studies, remarks that if Jesus had simply announced, Hi, folks, I'm God, that would have been heard as I'm Yahweh because the Jews of his day didn't have any concept of the Trinity. They only knew of God the Father, who they called Yahweh, and not God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. That's from the case for Christ. James Dunn said, when we compare our opening statements of the Nicene Creed with the picture which has emerged from the New Testament, it is clear that there have been a considerable development over that period in early Christian belief in and understanding of Jesus as the Son of God. Leir Hurtado says, Jesus' devotion also shaped and indeed required the considerable efforts of the next several centuries toward formulation of further Christian doctrine about Jesus and God. So in conclusion, you, the audience, are given the task to decide which side has done the better job of proving their points and making a complete case. My prayer is that you would set your assumptions aside as you evaluate the evidence. Which position is more clearly biblical and logically sound? Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, rebuttals.
in our opening statement, we made two contentions, and that is contention number one. The Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. And as we're looking through the opening statement of Will, we're noticing a few things here. Number one, there was no explicit reference given, and I'm sure that Will himself would grant this. There was no explicit reference given that denies that Jesus is either God or Yahweh. None whatsoever. But there were certain implicit passages that were given. The reason I'm saying this is to contrast this within our opening position, that which is our second contention, that the Bible explicitly calls Jesus Lord in the sense in which it's applied in the Old Testament as Yahweh. So that itself ought to be the first thing to pay attention to. But let's look at some of the passages, the implicit passages they gave to demonstrate that Jesus is not Yahweh. The first argument is that Yahweh is a personal name of God. And the argument here is that Yahweh is a father. Therefore, that must mean that Yahweh only applies to the father alone. Now, this is simply false because on a number of occasions, uh, the Bible actually applies the title father to Jesus, though it must be said, not in the definite article sense. Isaiah 9.6 refers to Jesus as everlasting father, uh, Aviad. Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus actually describes himself as the father in that story, not to be confused with God the father, but himself. If you discuss the self-understanding of Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, which begins with an angry religious group upset with Jesus for receiving the sinners and tax collectors, Luke 15, 3 says he tells them this parable, in my own understanding, in response to their tension, them being upset with him for receiving sinners. And he tells them the story of the prodigal son, where he is the father, there is a sinful, rebellious son who has come back, and there's an angry, self-righteous son. And so in that story, Jesus identifies himself, or at least understands himself, to be the father of both the unrighteous Jew and the self-righteous Jew. Uh, and thus, I would say that first argument does not work at all, not by Jesus' self-understanding, not by the Old Testament. What about the second argument, that Jesus is a human name given to the Son? And here, Will cited Larry Hurtado. I want to say quite clearly that Larry Hurtado would agree with me. The late Larry Hurtado distinguishes between God and Lord in the same way that I do. I would fully agree with Larry's distinction of God and Lord. What Larry is simply saying is that God refers to the Father in the New Testament so that Jesus cannot come and simply say, I am God. That would be to confuse him with God the Father. Instead, Larry argues that Jesus identifies himself as Lord being equal to the Father. And so in that sense, the New Testament authors argues Larry Hurtado distinguish between God and Lord, applying the Elohim equivalent theos in the New Testament to God the Father and the Yahweh in the New Testament, Kyrios, to Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, Larry Hurtado is simply agreeing with everything that we've just said in this opening statement. What about the third argument that was given, that the Messianic expectation is distinct from Yahweh here? Will cited Deuteronomy chapter 18. But if you look at Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 20, nothing in Deuteronomy 18, uh, was 18 to 20, denies that the Messiah is in fact Yahweh. All it says is the Messiah is sent by Yahweh, and we don't deny that Jesus was sent by God, by God the Father. That does not negate Jesus being God, because that very assumption itself is a Unitarian assumption. And may I add an assumption that the scripture does not teach. In fact, the scripture teaches both in the Old and in the New Testament, and we can get in this in the cross-examination, that Yahweh is more than one person. Now, he also argued in point three that Jesus is not equal to the Father and that Jesus is described as a servant 
of Yahweh and therefore not to be confused with Yahweh. Here again, I think with all due respect, Will is mistaken because even in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the passage that I cited where angels are calling the figure that Isaiah sees as Yahweh, Isaiah makes this important point in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up. And that's a key phrase, because when you go to the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 53, 52 to 53, at the end of Isaiah 52, in the servant songs, where it's talking about the servant of Yahweh, it says, behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up, which means that the exact servant that was high and lifted up in Isaiah 53, who is the suffering servant, the Messiah, is the same figure in Isaiah chapter 6, who Isaiah saw uh, seated in heaven, seated with the train of his robe filling the temple. So again, I would say that the Old Testament itself would disagree with Will on that. He also mentioned in this third argument that Jesus being exalted to the right hand of Yahweh means that Jesus is distinct from Yahweh. Again, I would have to respectfully disagree based on Philippians chapter 2, which states explicitly, don't have to interpret this explicitly, Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. When does this take place? This takes place before the incarnation. Because he considers equality with God something not to be cling on to, he humbles himself and takes on being born in the likeness of man. So the incarnation comes after Jesus humbling himself. And so in that sense, when you read about the father exalting Jesus, giving him a name above all name, that comes in the context after Jesus has given up or relinquished his equality with the father in the sense of taking on human nature. So again, I think that even scripture would openly disagree with Will's assessment. But in the remaining few minutes I have, I do want to pass the time to Dr. Carl to see if he wants to respond to anything else. Will, thank you so much. That was an excellent opening. It's clear that you are a very good debater and it's clear that you are a preacher because I could see that passion there whenever you were speaking. Thank you so much as well for sticking to the topic. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? We're not going to get into rabbinics. We're not going to get into fourth Ezra, the similitudes of Enoch. We are going to stick with scripture. And I love that. I would want to point out a couple of things, though. Uh, you had asked at one point that we set aside our beliefs in order to interpret scripture. I don't think that that's something that we can or should do. In fact, I would argue that we bring our presuppositions to the text. And what we're looking at is not so much how we could set those presuppositions aside, but whether or not our presuppositions and the view of the text that we have is consistent. So there was almost nothing that you said in the opening statement that I couldn't say as a Trinitarian. So for instance, you said, um, we would disagree that Yahweh is a singular noun with a singular referent. Whenever I refer to God, I refer to him as him. I use singular pronouns, singular verbs, everything else, because I believe that Yahweh is one. I do not believe in tritheism or three gods. I believe in one God who has three upostasis, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so whether or not there are 20,000 references to Yahweh as a single unity, well, we would agree. Yahweh in his being is a single unity. I would as well point out what Samuel mentioned. You quoted Larry Hurtado, you quoted Richard Bauckham, you quoted Ben Witherington. These are all Trinitarians. And in fact, all of them, of course, Larry Hurtado has gone to be with the Lord, but all of them are evangelical. And so they would claim that scripture alone teaches that Jesus is 
Yahweh. And in fact, books like God Crucified or the one more that you mentioned or BW3, Ben Witherington, he's, he's written on this topic as well. And they would all argue with us that there is a creator creature distinction, but that through Jesus being worshiped, the type of honor he receives and various passages that are attributed to him, Jesus falls on the creator side of this distinction. Hopefully in the cross-examination we'll have more time. You seem to speak of divinity as a spectrum, like there are non-divine things, and then there are these agents that are kind of divine, and then you get over here to Yahweh. But we would deny that. We would say that the Bible teaches a strict monotheism where only Yahweh and his hypostasis, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are on the side of Creator. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the rebuttal from the negative side. Thanks so much for your spirited opening statement. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we can all agree this is going to be an excellent debate. Now, their position argues in the affirmative that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. And I want to spend some time talking about their main points. Now, granted, we only have 10 minutes to respond to a 15-minute opening statement, so we're going to have to kind of summarize and put some things together. If there's something that would need a little bit more time, uh, I encourage uh, my dialogue partners to raise it in cross-examination. So they suggested that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is God based on three passages from John, John 5, John 8, and John 10. Now, this might appear to be a really good argument, but I'm going to demonstrate that it actually is very problematic because there's a major theme in the gospel, John, called the theme of misunderstanding that every single commentary points out. And the theme of misunderstanding has basically three points. It has Jesus saying something provocative. That's point one. Point number two, his dialogue partners misunderstand him either by interpreting him literally or by asking an appropriate question. And the third part has either Jesus or the narrator explaining what actually Jesus meant. And when they cited these passages, they only cited the part that Jesus makes a provocative statement. In two of those passages, Jesus actually responds to their misunderstanding by saying that he is an obedient son and a son who is authorized and empowered by the Father, whom Jesus calls the only true God. Now, in John chapter 8, there was a long buildup of misunderstandings to where as you continue to read through verses 40 through all the way to the end of like 59, 60, uh, it becomes quite clear that the misunderstandings just get more ridiculous as the passage goes on. So their accusation of blasphemy is actually due to Jesus making a claim to be the Messiah. When he says, egoimi, he is saying, I am he, which, by the way, is a term that Jesus defined to mean I am the Messiah in John 4.26. And this, of course, is a term with which the Jews disagreed and picked up stones to stone him. So I think our position is a better choice 
Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is actually making messianic claims, not claims to be Yahweh. And of course, Jesus refers to the Father as the only true God, and then Jesus differentiates himself from that category of the only true God in chapter 17, verse 3. Now, they also raise the point of worship, suggesting that Yahweh is worthy of worship, Jesus worshiped, therefore, that would suggest that Jesus is Yahweh. This is a problematic argument because worship is not only due to God. In 1 Chronicles 29.20, we can see that Yahweh is worshipped and also the king is worshipped. They're both the object of worship, and there's no threat to monotheism or any suggestion that there's blasphemy that's taken place. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that human beings can indeed receive worship, that is, to be the object of the Greek verb proskuneo, without suggesting in the slightest that they are Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let me give you a list of people, human beings, that are authoritatively the object of proskuneo. The patriarch Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Jethro, Boaz, Jonathan, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, Bathsheba, the prophet Elisha, the prophet Daniel, and even Christians can be worshipped according to Jesus himself in Revelation 3 verse 9. So I think our position is a better choice because Jesus is, of course, worthy of worship because he is the Messiah, not as Yahweh himself. Now, they spent a lot of time working through Daniel, through Daniel chapter 7, where clearly the Son of Man receives worship. Why this argument is problematic? Well, let me tell you. The Ancient of Days, someone who, by the way, is distinct from the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, according to Daniel 7.14, is one who shares his dominion. He shares his authority, his glory, and his kingdom with the Son of Man. So God is empowering this qualified human being with God's own prerogatives. And then Daniel goes on to unpack the meaning of this prophecy, this vision, revealing the Son of Man to be a representative figure of suffering people of God, originally referring to those Jews suffering in the Maccabean period. What's the evidence for this? Well, as the angel unpacks this in Daniel 7 18, it says that the saints, the holy ones of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and they will possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come when it comes to unpacking what the Son of Man actually is. And the same thing happens in verses 21 through 22, where it's unpacked as the suffering holy ones of God. And then, of course, we could see the worship, of course, in 727. The sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. But this is God sharing it with qualified individuals in a way that's not a threat to monotheism. So the Son of Man is a representative figure for these qualified human beings. And that, of course, is why Jesus is able to die on behalf of these suffering persons. So why is our position a better choice? It's clear, as we demonstrated in our opening statement, that Jesus is the empowered and authorized Son of Man, one who represents the people of God by actually dying for them. And if he died for them, that means that he is mortal, something that Yahweh is not. They also pointed out Yahweh texts that were used for Jesus. Now, they mentioned Philippians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, drawing from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and Jude 1, 4, uh, which, by the way, is not a Yahweh passage, but We'll set that aside for now. 
it would take quite a bit of time for us to unpack each of these passages. And then we all know that if you pull up commentaries on Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that they're all 72 pages long in basically every commentary. Okay. So I thought I would just take one. I would just take one kind of as a characteristic thing. We'll look at Philippians 2. And of course, if we want to raise these questions again in cross-examination, I'd be happy to discuss them when we have a little bit more time there. Now, what we see in Philippians 2 is that Paul is actually telling us that God highly exalted Jesus. Those are two different beings. And in doing so, God gave to Jesus the name that is above every name. So this, of course, is God, again, sharing his name, sharing his prerogatives, sharing his privileges with qualified agents, thereby empowering the crucified and risen Jesus, the previously mortal person who has now been raised from the dead. He's now so highly exalted that he actually receives the name of God, something that he didn't have in verses 5, 6, and 7. The exaltation brings Jesus to a place that is much higher than where he started. And of course, we demonstrate in our opening statement that it is quite characteristic for Yahweh to empower qualified agents. So in Philippians 2, it's quite clear that God and Jesus are distinct. Jesus is not God in Philippians 2. And God shares his name with the highly exalted Jesus. In other words, does not possess the name Yahweh innately. It is something that he has because God gave it to him, just like we saw in Daniel 7. So why is our position a better choice? Well, this passage is actually cited by our dialogue partners to suggest that Jesus is Yahweh. On closer examination, the passage actually indicates that Jesus is distinct from Yahweh and functions as Yahweh's highly authorized and empowered agent. They also listed a variety of passages they called replacement passages. Titles for God, titles for Yahweh are now used for Jesus. Again, this fully fits into the concept of the Jewish principle of agency. An agent fully represents the one who sent him. Okay. When I order pizza and I order from Papa John's and they show up at the door and I ask my wife, Hey, who's at the door? She says, it's Papa John's. So I go and I open the door and it's a guy named Steve. And I could say, yes, sure. That's Papa John's. But clearly Steve is the agent who is representing Papa John's. It's so good. We should all have it here. Okay. We should all enjoy our Papa John's, but it's quite clear that the person who's delivering it can be referred to by the person who has sent him. And there's no confusion as if Steve, the delivery driver, has been collapsed into the identity of the owner of the franchise, Papa John's. That would be to confuse the agent for the one who sent the agent, which would be to, I think, ignore a pretty obvious point in the Jewish principle of agency. Our point, of course, is better because we're showing that God has highly empowered and authorized Jesus but this Jesus is a human being, the anointed one. He is the son of Yahweh. In closing, after hearing the opening statement, I have noticed that there is some equivocating on Yahweh, selective use of the term for worship, and ignoring some context in John's Gospel and Daniel 7. I encourage our audience to hold both sides accountable in their clear, logically coherent, and biblical responses that are offered. Thank you. You just heard the opening battles in this war. 
Which side do you think put forward a stronger case? Next week on the Trannies Podcast, you'll hear their mutual cross-examinations, their answers to audience questions, and their brief closing statements. This week's thinking music has been the track Sparky by Admiral Funk. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.